resuming our studies today in Genesis, chapter 45, the story of Jacob's family. Uh, And today we will see the response of Joseph's brothers in verse 13 of chapter 45. He said, hurry and bring my father down here. Uh, And today we will see uh, Jacob and his family coming down to Egypt uh, to be reunited with Joseph. We're going to read today chapter 45 of Genesis, beginning in verse 16, and we will read into chapter 46, verse 27. Genesis chapter 45, verse 16, through to chapter 46, verse 27. You can find that on page 39, if you've not yet found it on our cart Bibles. And before we go to the Lord and read His Word, let us go again to His throne of grace in prayer. Please join me. O Lord, our God, we thank You that You are the God who speaks comfort and wisdom and assurance to Your people. We thank You that in Your Word we have many promises of Your love and Your care for us. We thank You that we are reminded that You are our great shepherd, and through Jesus Christ You are leading us home to Yourself. Help us today as we see Your shepherding care uh, to look to You in faith and in joy And in faithfulness, O Lord, work in us by your Spirit so that we would be faithful to follow diligently those places where you have placed us and those areas where you call us to go. Make us faithful to you because of your love for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear God's word as we find it. Genesis chapter 45, beginning in verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. Pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac, And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. 
Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry them. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamel. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jaliel. These are the sons of Leah whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Eridai, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Zerah their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malchiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shilem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. You know, one of the fringe benefits of being a father of a young family is having an excuse to read great adventure stories, the kinds of books that if you are an adult are normally thought of as optional at best. If you have time in your schedule, maybe a little bit of extra entertainment. But when you have children, and here's a tip for those of you who don't yet have children, uh, use this to your advantage. When you have children, you can tell yourself it's an important part of, of giving them good imaginations and raising them to, uh, to have uh, wild ideas in their head and, and to go after big things. And so we do that. We shape the imagination of our children. Dutifully, we read these great stories and secretly... I think we enjoy them more than they do. Now, when they're very young, uh, you start off with things that are, are pretty simple. It's cartoonish, and it's little books, and then it gets a little more complex, and it's wind in the willows, and there's mole, and there's ratty, and, 
and towed with his motor car. And then eventually the kids are ready for some more peril, and it's on to Narnia. And you find these valiant kings and these valiant queens fighting in these glorious battles, and it's so refreshing. Uh, right there in your to-do list, it's like this little escape. And it's this getaway, and it even grows that sensation of wanderlust in you and in your children, that, that feeling that uh, hard experiences and difficult things are worth having if you can get them. That wanderlust is exactly how it happened for Bilbo Baggins. And Tolkien's hero simply wanted to live out his days in the comfort of the Shire. And then 13 dwarves showed up, and they began to sing of dragon fire and stolen treasure, and Tolkien writes, as they sang, the hobbit felt the love of beautiful things made by hands and by cunning and by magic moved through him, a fierce and jealous love, the desire of the hearts of the dwarves. Then something Tookish woke up inside him and he wished to go and see the great mountains and hear the pine trees and the waterfalls and explore the caves and to wear a sword instead of a walking stick. And you read, and the wanderlust takes hold, and you want to be there too to explore all those things and carry a sword, and then reality sets in. You remember that you're just an adult reading to a child. <laughs> and you've got things on your plate, and you realize that peril and danger and struggling from one thing to the next is never as refreshing as the storybooks make it out to be. Jacob knew that. Jacob knew what it was to be a sojourner and a wanderer and a journeyer through the world. Don't forget that Jacob, now an old man, spent the better part of his life, a very unglamorous portion of his life, away from his home and away from his family, banished from the promised land because of his sin and for the sake of his safety. And he was away from all the things that he wanted. And he spent decades scrapping from one conflict to another conflict as he learned of God's mercy. And now it's his twilight years. He's already been talking about dying for the last two decades. Almost everything we hear come out of Jacob's life. He is aware that he is near death. It is his twilight years, and the Lord is calling him to pack up and to leave all over again. And it is a journey that he does not want to take. And it produces anxiety in Jacob, fear of the future. Can you imagine what might befall him and his family down in Egypt? Can you number all of the things that could possibly go wrong in this pagan land? And in his fear, the Lord speaks to him and comforts him. He calls him to follow with his eyes open to see what God will do. The passage that we've just read is really all about a journey. In fact, two journeys. We've seen a caravan coming up from Egypt, and then we see the convoy going down from Canaan. Those are the two halves of the story that we just read, and, and we're going to see those two halves. And in those two halves, in those two pieces, we're going to catch a glimpse not just of a journey to somewhere Jacob doesn't want to go, but we're going to catch a glimpse of God's comfort for his people as they wander through this world. That comfort is going to come in two ways. It's going to come in the comfort of abundance for Jacob. And it's going to come in the uh, comfort of assurance for Jacob. Let's take a look at that first one. We find it in the end of chapter 45, God meeting uh, his servant in abundance. And, and abundance really is the unavoidable context of the passage. 
uh, and it's almost staggering when you begin to list out, well, how many donkeys went back? Well, Jacob's own donkeys with his son, and then uh, Joseph sent 10 more, and then 10 more, and there were provisions, and were those other, and it's hard almost to keep straight how much abundance is coming up uh, from the land of Egypt. And, and there is this little phrase here, he sent up wagons, and well, that doesn't seem very impressive to us, but if you lived in the ancient Near East, wagons were impressive. Wagons were a big deal. That was like a Learjet. This was, this was Pharaoh's own convoy going to get Jacob. Think about all of Jacob's sojourns outside of the land. And he comes back and he has so much wealth that as he goes and he prepares to meet Esau, his brother, he sends him gifts in droves and send the camels, send the sheep, send the goats and everything else, one after the other, and he doesn't have a single wagon to speak of. He is incredibly rich, but he doesn't have any wagons. No, 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 wagons are king's carts. These would belong to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, go and send my fleet and bring them down. And he says, and when he comes down, when your father comes, invite him to eat of the best of the land, the fat of the land. That sounds nice, a, a nice flowery way to put it. Everything is at your disposal, but don't forget that this is a time of famine. You know, there is that saying that nobody is really sure uh, who to attribute it to, and so many of them put it on the head of Marie Antoinette, that idea that in a time of famine in France, she finds out that the peasants have no bread, and she says, well, let them eat cake, and she's so out of touch. If they have no bread, let them eat brioche. But Pharaoh is saying, yeah, it's a time of famine, and people are dying, but come down and have cake with me. Come down and eat the best of the land. Nothing will be withheld from Jacob. It is free reign in Egypt. Do you need food? Do you need housing? Do you need flocks or clothing? This is amazing abundance. This is hospitality of a king. Now, this is a strange foreign policy, if you begin to see it that way. Here's the king of Egypt inviting uh, a man and his family, his direct descendants, are 70 persons. Now, Abraham, earlier in the book of Genesis, had just two direct descendants, and yet when something happened, he had lots of servants. He could gather 381 men from within his own number. So who knows the multitude that's coming down with Jacob, and yet Pharaoh says, come down and don't worry about anything. This is strange foreign policy. Why on earth would Pharaoh have anything to do with Jacob and his family in Canaan? Well, it's because of Joseph. Joseph is the missing link. He is the connection between these unknown men in Canaan and the most powerful man in the known world. Had Joseph been angry with his family? Had Joseph sought the vengeance that his brothers were afraid he was going to seek? these men would not have been brought down. Pharaoh would have been sending a very different kind of convoy back to Canaan, and it would have been to slaughter Jacob and his family because they had wronged his second-in-command. The most uh, important person to Pharaoh was Joseph. But it was because Joseph had peace with his brothers because, as we saw last week, he bore the weight of reconciliation with them even though they had sinned against them, against him. Because Joseph had peace with his brothers, they would be brought. And Pharaoh was pleased to bring them into the kingdom and to give them anything they needed. 
You see, the whole family received abundance because of the reconciliation that Joseph had with his brothers. And we see proof of that in the clothing that he gives. It says that he gave to each and all of them a change of clothes. Now, that's pretty significant on a few different levels. One, you remember that years ago, back in Dothan, before they threw Jacob, Joseph, rather, too many J names, before they threw Joseph into a pit, what did they do? They tore his robe off of him. They stripped him bare. Not only to have that possession that marked him out as daddy's favorite, but to humiliate him and to show their contempt for Joseph. And they, they sent him either naked or nearly naked as a slave into Egypt with nothing. So there's one level of significance. The other level is that we're still following on the scene of Joseph bringing his brothers back after the cup has been found in Benjamin's grain sack. And what did they do when that was found? They tore their clothes. You've got to get this image in your head that there is Joseph and he finally reveals himself to his brothers and they're standing there in tattered robes because they are men whose pasts and guilt have been exposed. And it is displayed in these shabby robes that have now been torn. Their, their past and their guilt is written all over them. And Joseph says, let me clothe you. Let me cover your shame. Let me cover your past. Let me cover your sin. There is peace with me. And let me send you back up to our Father in peace. And yes, he, he gives a lot more to Benjamin. 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes, a whole wardrobe full. But there's peace because the brothers don't say a word about that. They're not perturbed that Benjamin gets more, that he might be the favorite. There is peace. And that's what that parting statement to his brothers is all about. Do not quarrel on the way. Can you imagine the stress of appearing before Jacob and pouring out the truth of what happened to Joseph for the first time in 22 years? And it would be a lot easier if just one of the people in the group could take the blame, wouldn't it? Joseph knows that accusations and quarreling and harsh words might be close behind them as they go up to their father. Or maybe they'd point the finger at, uh, at Reuben. He was the firstborn. Or, or Judah, he had the idea to sell him anyway. But Joseph says, no, none of this. Don't, don't point the finger. Don't uh, accuse one another. He has forgiven all of their wrong, and there's nothing left to fear. There's no accusation left to bring. He sends them up in abundance and in reconciliation to their father. Now, notice when the brothers come back to Jacob, they come with all of these things. And when they relate the truth of what's happened to, uh, to Joseph and the fact that he's still alive, their father is stunned. The phrase actually in the Hebrew is that his heart stopped. Uh, he had a near-death experience. He couldn't believe it. Uh, and uh, and he had to, they had to revive him somehow. And, and the way they did that was to convince him, no, uh, Joseph actually is alive. And he, he is revived, in a sense, when he sees all of these things that have come up. But here's the remarkable thing. When Jacob finally comes to, and he believes their words, and he sees the wagons, the abundance that had been brought up, uh, his focus shifts. The abundance for Jacob isn't really just about generosity. Quite frankly, he has enough 
on his own, except for grain. That's the only thing they needed. When he sent his sons down into Egypt, he was able to send them with some of the best things of his own land. He doesn't need this abundance, and the abundance isn't coming just to, uh, to give him things that he does not have. The abundance is coming as a means of comfort, as a reminder that his son is actually alive. And by the time we get to verse 28, all that abundance had already fulfilled its purpose. If Jacob just left them in Canaan, if he left it all to rot in the desert and went down to Egypt, it would have fulfilled its purpose because the abundance came in comfort to Jacob to remind him that the Lord was still working and that Joseph was alive. And it wasn't the abundance that drew Jacob to Egypt. It was love for his son. Now, so we see that God meets Jacob and he meets family with this abundance. And that should raise a question of, what do we think about God and His abundance? There are a few options, and I'm sure that you're aware that there are some teachers in the church who say that this is the way that God always works, in physical, outward, worldly abundance. And if you are His child, you ought to prepare yourself for your way to be light and easy, and your pockets to be full, and your belly to be filled, and to have all the good things of the world. And if you don't have those things, you better check and see if you're praying hard enough or you're doing well enough or if you're even a child of God at all because God blesses his people with physical, outward, worldly abundance. That's one option that people would take. You swing the pendulum in the other direction all the way to the extreme and we say, no, 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 Jesus told us we'd better get ready for hardship in the world if we're going to follow him. And so there is no abundance. And so the whole point of our lives is just to grit our teeth and just to make it until that day when we'll be with him. And there's, there's no abundance to talk about, really. Well, there's another way to look at this. I think the way that an older generation would have read this story. An older generation uh, would have read the words of uh, Jacob and his sons, and they would have had their fingers always on the pulse of the gospel, right underneath the surface as it was beating there. And modern commentators don't like to do that. It feels like an allegory. It feels like we're turning Joseph into something that Joseph was never supposed to be about. Uh, but this is how so many before us would have read uh, the story in, in Genesis and the story with Jacob's family. Here's how Arthur Pink put it in his studies in Genesis. He says, our study of the Old Testament books is but superficial. It only scratches the surface. Our study of the Old Testament books is but superficial if they fail to show us that by various means, God was preparing the world for the coming of his son. Thus, Adam represents Jesus' headship. Abel represents his death. Melchizedek pointed to him as priest, Moses as prophet, David as king, but the fullest of all these representations was Joseph. Now, you can read the rest of Pink's work, and he will list out 101 parallels between Joseph and Jesus, and to be honest, some of them feel like a stretch, some of them feel like an allegory, but many of them are apropos and very rich. He was sent by his father to seek out his brothers and became a servant. He was envied and hated, and he was betrayed and sold for silver. He was tempted and yet did not sin. Joseph, in a sense, became the savior of the world, the only name under heaven in that part, at least, whereby you could receive the bread of life in a time of famine. He was the only one you could go to. And so there are all these parallels, and, and you could have a great study. Uh, if you want to pick up 
Pink's book, and you want to you pick up all of those threads and chase them down. But I think what we see more is, is here now at the end where things are starting to come together. And it's not just a thread. It's a whole tapestry of what God has been doing in his people and for their good. When we see the whole picture coming together, there really is a beautiful picture of the abundance of the gospel for God's people and the fact that God worked this way for all of his children. The promise of the gospel is that there is a king. And that king has every resource at his disposal. And that king offers life to those who are dead in sin. He offers strength to those who are weary with iniquity. He offers a father's love to those who are street urchins and have no home and no family. This king has promised to prepare a place where he will welcome us to himself where every need will be met and where we will be with him, where we will feast richly, yes, there is abundance, and where we will celebrate in his presence. And because not a single one of us is worthy enough to merit all of this abundance, the Son of God offers to clothe us with his worthiness, to give us garments of his righteousness, to cover our nakedness and our shame and our sin because he bore the weight of our reconciliation, he makes peace one with another and all of us with the Lord through himself. You say, well, that sounds like the second option you just gave us. We're waiting, right? It, it, it'll be later. There's no abundance now. We're, just, we're waiting until the Lord does that. But as we wait for these things to be fulfilled, there is still abundance. There's the abundant promise that now God knows us and loves us. And he listens to us and he cares for us. There's the abundance of knowing that we who are dust and ashes can be called children of the living God. You see, the story of Joseph isn't just about abundance for this family in Canaan. This is God's pattern with all of his people. That he has resources at his disposal and he pours them out upon his children. He is the Lord who is able to supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He is the Lord who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He is the Lord who comforts us with unimaginable abundance. So that's the first thing, the first comfort that Jacob received. It was abundance. And he also receives the comfort of assurance. We see this beginning in chapter 46. Now at this point in Jacob's life, assurance rather was what he needed. He actually had quite a bit of abundance, quite a bit of abundance on his own, but he needed assurance it seemed like the Lord was opening this door to go down to Egypt. It seemed like from where he stood, maybe God's sovereign hand had prepared a way for him and for his family to survive this famine and to go down, but there was this puzzling element. It was this idea of Egypt. Why Egypt of all places? You know, the last time a Hebrew went down to Egypt to survive a famine, it didn't go very well. You may remember Abraham and his lie about his wife and and how he got into hot water with Pharaoh because of all these things. Would God really want him to go down and to do this all over again? And besides, it seemed like God's promises, so many of his covenant promises to his people, centered around the land that he was about to leave. That was the promise to Abraham. Come out, Abraham, of Ur of the Chaldees, and go to a different land that I will show you, and it will be yours. 
walk the length and the breadth of it, and as far as your eye can see, as far as your foot can tread, it will all belong to you and to your descendants. This is my promise to you, Abraham. There was land in the promise uh, to Isaac. Turn with me back to chapter 26 of Genesis. We see God's promise here centered on the land. Genesis chapter 26. Some more interesting parallels here. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, and the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. That's pretty clear. Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give these lands. And the rest of that chapter follows Isaac as he's searching for the right place to settle down, and he settles down in Beersheba. That was where Isaac lived, in the land with his people. That's pretty clear, even in famine. Don't leave the land. Don't go down to Egypt. It seems the Lord was concerned about the land itself. And then you remember, in Jacob's dream, the first time Jacob left the promised land and he was sojourning uh, with Laban, the Lord met him at Bethel. He left Beersheba, where he is now in the story. He went to Bethel, and the Lord appeared to him, and he said this, Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. It seems like God was concerned about this land, so you see Jacob's dilemma. It looked like God was providing for him. That was completely expected. God had always provided for him wherever he went. But what about this thing with Egypt? Of all places... And it was completely unexpected, and Jacob was afraid. So he came to Beersheba, where his father had dwelled, and actually where it was the end of the promised land. Sometimes in the Old Testament you'll read, and they'll summarize the promised land, they'll say, from Dan to Beersheba, from down east Maine to Key West, Florida, everything in between, here's the top and the bottom, and Beersheba was the bottom. This was the place, if he was going to turn around, now is the time. And he comes to Beersheba with his family, and he stands fearful. Now we need to ask, what did Jacob do in his fear? He worshipped. Jacob took his fear, and he turned it to worship. It says, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Let me ask, is that what you do with your fears? Is that what you do when you're in need of guidance in some area of your life? Or is worship, is seeking God's counsel, is that some extra add-on when everything else is otherwise settled? You know, we have in our minds, if you've taken your Psychology 101 class, there's Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, and it's this little pyramid. And on the bottom, basic needs of life, and then uh, personal needs for safety, and then maybe companionship and communion, and all the way at the top, uh, Maslow's pinnacle is self-actualization. And we sometimes think, worship is up there, and if I get everything else settled, then I can get to that stuff. But that's not how Jacob saw it. Jacob didn't turn to worship after he got his life in order. Worship was how he allowed God to order his life. That's what he did with his fears. He turned to the Lord in worship. He allowed God to set him straight, and the Lord did that. He showed up, and he spoke to Jacob, and it was in worship that Jacob found the Lord to be exactly who he already knew him to be. 
And there is constancy and there is assurance here. We're not going to unpack everything that God spoke, but I want to draw your attention to two things. One, that God reveals again his person and God speaks again his promise. Take a look at the way that he reveals his person. Jacob comes in Beersheba and he calls upon, it says, the God of his father and the Lord appears in the vision of the night and he says, you got it. You're right. That's who I am. He says, I am God. Actually, there's, uh, there's a definite article there. In the Hebrew, a better translation is, I am the God. The only one there ever has been. The only one there ever will be. The same God who dealt with your father. I'm the one. The only one. I am the God. I am the God of your father, Isaac. And you already know me. I haven't changed. Even though your circumstances are different and unexpected, I am the God who met you at Bethel. I am the God who prospered you with Laban. I am the God who brought you back to Canaan. And yes, I am the God who's calling you to Egypt. I am the Lord who does not change. And because I do not change, my people are not consumed. This is what the Lord reveals to Jacob. He reveals his person. I'm the same God you always knew me to be, even though you're fearful, Jacob. And then he tells him his promise. Verse 3. He says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is a promise that we've heard. This is a promise that Jacob has heard, and Isaac before him has heard, and Abraham had heard. I will make you into a great nation. The Lord is reiterating something that he'd already told him. There is a consistency in what God is doing, but there is something new. It's the idea of Egypt. In fact, in the Hebrew, the word order is different so that it emphasizes this little word there. It actually puts it at the end. The Lord says, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. Even though you can't understand how it's going to happen, your your circumstances, Jacob, are no obstacle for me. I'm able to keep my promises anywhere. In fact, I myself will go down with you and I will come up. Don't don't let your mind be shaped by the way the the pagans think, Jacob. They all thought uh, that there were many gods and they were in different places. and, And if you were in the land of the Philistines, you were in the jurisdiction of the God of the Philistines. You know, and if you can outrun the Massachusetts state cop by getting over the New Hampshire border, you were safe. And God is saying, no, I am the only one, the God of your father, and I will go everywhere with you. There is nowhere that I will call you to go that I will not be with you. That is his promise. I will maintain faithfulness to what I have always said, and I do not change. You know, this week I read a news article about Steamboat Geyser uh, out in Yellowstone National Park. Steamboat is one of the geysers out there with all the other geysers and all the hot springs, and it shoots water up into the air when it gets hot, but it's been attracting a lot of attention. Because in the last two months, in March and in April, it has erupted three times. No big deal, except the last time it erupted was in 2014. And it's sort of sporadic. Uh, And so lots of people are wondering, what's going on with Steamboat Geyser? I mean, you compare that to Old Faithful, uh, which might as well be called Old Predictability, because that's what it is. 
about every 90 minutes. Old Faithful erupts and shoots water up into the air, and you can go home and pull up the Yellowstone website, and you can see it on the webcam, and they'll tell you within plus or minus 10 minutes, here's the next time you can see Old Faithful erupt, Old Predictable, here it goes. But not so with Steamboat, because it seems erratic, and people are worried. Is this an indication that there is some sort of thermic disturbance deep underneath the Earth, some sort of volcanic activity that could take out the entire geyser system and will no longer have a Yellowstone or an Old Faithful or anything? And people are worried, because it's not going the way that they expect it to go. But Michael Poland is not worried. He is the director of the Yellowstone Volcanic Observatory. He spent his life uh, studying these geysers and watching them. And the article that I read ended with a quote from Michael Poland. He said, there is nothing to be afraid of. This is what geysers do. They erupt. <laughs> but what about the unpredictability? They erupt. This is what they do. This is the, the lesson that Jacob had to learn. This is what God does. He keeps his promises. Well, what about Egypt? He keeps his promises. What about Joseph? He keeps his promises. What about no? He had to learn that even though God is sometimes unpredictable, he is always faithful. And it happened in worship. In worship, Jacob learned that the God who does not change can handle all of our anxiety about what he's up to in our lives, and God could be trusted. In fact, God could be trusted completely. You, you notice that the rest of our passage ends with a genealogy, and some of you may be disappointed that we are not going to walk through it verse by verse. I'm not trying to give genealogy short shrift as though they're not important in Scripture. They are important, but for our sakes the appearance of the genealogy is more important than the details of the genealogy. And you can work out later which are the 66 and which four are not included. And you can do the math, and it's there. You can work it out. But what we see before that genealogy is that Joseph, uh, Jacob rather trusts the Lord completely. Even though he's unpredictable, he trusts him completely. And in the genealogy, his whole family shows up. He takes everybody to Egypt. There is not a child, there is not a sheep, there is not a tent peg that is left in Canaan. Here's what it says in the end of verse 6. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters with him, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Because God had met him with the comfort of assurance. And there are people in this congregation who have had to meet the Lord the same way in the last several years. There are folks in our congregation who have had to follow an unpredictable Lord through a cancer diagnosis or through the loss of someone very close, unexpected loneliness, chronic pain. There are lots of people who worship with us today because at some point, they tried to discern whether the Lord was leading them away from a home where they knew everyone and a place that was comfortable and friends that were close to go to New England of all places where the winters last forever and the people are cold and who knows if there are Christians in Massachusetts. 
There are people who have faced unwanted struggles with unwanted sins that nobody else knows about because they seem like the kind of thing that you're not supposed to mention in polite company. And there are all the little disappointments of your own failures, and you wonder how the Lord could still be leading you as you're going through what feels like a wasteland. But then, in the midst of your fear, and more often than not, in the midst of worship, you listen again to what the Lord is saying. You listen to his promises, and you find that he's still leading you. This is how God comforts his people. With the promises that he speaks to them in his Son, he leads them with those promises of always and never. Lo, I am with you always, and I will never leave you or forsake you. This is the way the Lord comforts his people. He gives us abundance in Jesus and assurance that we are his. I hope you're following him and trusting in him and entrusting yourself to him today. Let's pray. O gracious Lord and God, God of abundant mercy and care in Jesus Christ, thank you that you meet us and lead us in him. Thank you for assurance that you are ever the same, that you do not change, that your years have no end, that even the stars and the sun will wear out like a garment and you will roll them up and shake them like the dust of the earth, and yet your years have no end. Thank you that you are the God who is constant for us. And that in Jesus, we have a reminder that we belong to you. And through faith, you hear us and love us and lead us in him. Help us, O God of mercy and grace, to come to you with hearts full of your assurance and looking to the abundance that we have in him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.